Hi, welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. My name is Eli Ayala, founder and host of Revealed Apologetics. If you've been blessed by the content of this podcast or the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel, please consider supporting us. You can support Revealed Apologetics by generously giving at revealedapologetics.com. Choose the donate button and give either through PayPal or Venmo. Or you can simply write a brief review of the podcast on iTunes. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you're interested in having me speak at your event, you can connect with me by filling out the contact info on the Revealed Apologetics website homepage or simply email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're interested in signing up for my online apologetics course, information on Presup University can also be found on the Revealed Apologetics website. Folks can sign up anytime and the course content will be sent to them. Once again, thank you so much for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today I have a very special guest that I'm going to uh, introduce in just a moment. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to give a heads up uh, for folks who may be in the Fredericksburg area in Virginia this Friday and Saturday. I'll be speaking at an apologetics conference alongside um, Anthony Rogers. Uh, you guys might be familiar with, with his work in Islam, and uh, Dr. Robert Bowman, who has a couple of books out on the cults. Um, so we'll be talking about cult apologetics, presuppositional apologetics, apologetic methodology, th those sorts of things. And that will be um, hosted by uh, the Knox Reformed Presbyterian Church in Fredericks Fredericksburg, Virginia. So if you guys are interested in, in and you're in the area, uh, you might want to check out their website, uh, Knox Reformed Presbyterian uh, Church.org, and uh, sign up for that. I think signups are still uh, possible. So I um, just wanted to throw that out. Uh, today, though, I am super, super excited. Uh, I had invited uh, Dr. Matthew Barrett on a while back, and and uh, he's super busy, and uh, he was under the weather uh, the second time around, so we had to push things across, uh, push it back. But um, a lot of people were excited that that he was going to be on, and so I'm I'm just super excited. This is a, an awesome topic. We're actually going to do uh, two topics mixed together. So we're going to be talking about sola scriptura, but we're also going to be talking about the Trinity, which is another area of his expertise. So. Um, uh, I'm very happy that we're going to be doing that. I'm sure this is going to be a blessing to those who are listening in. Um, I do know that there are folks who listen in who are not adherents to Sola Scriptura and uh, are probably not very um, uh, not very into Protestant theology and Reformation theology, but I'm happy that you guys are listening in too, and I hope that uh, the comments are, are nice and respectful even in the midst of disagreement. So just kind of a gentle... Um, a gentle uh, push to keep it nice <laughs> in the comments section. All right. Well, let me introduce Matthew Barrett by uh, kind of filling folks in. If you don't know who he is, Matthew Barrett is an associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the founder and executive editor of Credo Magazine, an evangelical publication making theology accessible to those in the church. And he is the host of the Credo podcast, which as just a side note, 
as before I continue reading uh, on, I highly recommend you go to iTunes right now and subscribe to the Credo podcast. It's excellent. It's got awesome interviews and awesome discussions. But he is uh, the host of the Credo podcast where he has conversations with the best theologians today to discuss the most important issues in theology. Dr. Barrett has been the executive editor of Credo Magazine for over 10 years, publishing over 40 issues, and you could read about why he founded uh, Credo Magazine uh, on the website. He's also the author of numerous books, such as Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, the book None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God, God's Word Alone, The, Th the Authority of Scripture, which uh, touches on the topic we're going to be um, talking about today. Uh, Canon, Covenant, and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel. And he's also edited a number of other books as well. And he's got a couple of things coming up soon. So maybe he can share, uh, share a little bit of that with us in just a moment. He's originally from California, receiving his BA from Biola University in La Mirada, California. And he received his MDiv and PhD in Systematic Theology from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so he is um, a super, super qualified individual to talk about the topics that we're going to be discussing today. And without further ado, I would like to uh, introduce Dr. Matthew Barrett. How are you doing, Dr. Barrett? I'm doing great. Uh, sorry. I'm so sorry. I... I got sick. It, it wasn't COVID. I can verify that. But um, people still actually get sick, even if it's not COVID, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> I, I had forgotten that. And uh, as my wife will tell you, uh, when I get a cold, it's I might, you might as well just put me in the grave. So <laughs> I appreciate you being patient with me and uh, glad to uh, join you. And, and try, I'll try my best to follow that very generous a too generous introduction there. <laughs> well, I basically just read your info page. I, I skipped I skipped a whole host of information because there's there's so much uh, that could be said about you. You're uh, very accomplished in what you do. And uh, I do follow you on Facebook. And I love when you post pictures of books or the, your classroom. It, it makes me want to go off and study something. So uh, I very much appreciate what you do. Well, thank you very much. Well, why don't you uh, tell folks a little bit about uh, what you're working on? Are you working on, on a current project now, uh, publishing a book at all, or, or what's going on in your end? I actually am, uh, believe it or not. I, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, I have been writing on the doctrine of God quite a bit, uh, trying okay. to reach those um, who are pastors or beginner students, uh, maybe the churchgoer, uh, who, who's theologically minded. And so I wrote a book years ago called None Greater, The uh, Undomesticated Attributes of God. And then recently, yeah, there it is, it, uh, in the flesh. <laughs> and, and I'm halfway through it. And it okay. is, when, when I read theology, it stimulates my mind, but uh, and it's kind of intellectually stimulating. So we like to think about yeah. these things. But reading your book just makes me stand in awe of God all the more. So I like that there's that intellectual strength that you provide, but also it produces a desire to worship. So I, I really, I this is an excellent book so far. Well, thank you. Uh, that 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 warms my heart. It makes me think. Uh, I may, maybe I'm doing just a little a little bit right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, uh, that book. Uh, really it was meant to introduce Christians to uh, attributes of God that mm. are considered just basic to Christian orthodoxy across all of history. But uh, in, in our modern era, we have forgotten and sometimes outright abandoned. And so I'm uh, in that book trying to help us uh, really uh, dump, so to speak, the paradigm 
that we've inherited that tends to uh, domesticate God in a whole number of ways and, and give us a, a fresh but actually quite an old picture of God that goes back to the scriptures and the great tradition. I followed that book uh, with another one, uh, Simply Trinity, which just released this year. The Unmanipulated, yep, there it is. <laughs> the Unmanipulated Father. Yeah, your free advertisement. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and uh, we, I'm sure we'll talk about this one a little bit. Um, uh, this one uh, continues that theme and, and then turns to the Trinity. And uh, here I get into uh, really some surprising and a bit uh, some shocking discoveries as sure. to the ways that we've been suspicious and, and critical and, and sometimes have even jettisoned uh, uh, just biblical or Nicene orthodoxy. Mm. Um, I have another book that will follow, be the third in that trilogy um, called Secret Providence. And that mm. one will be looking at the providence of God. It may be the most practical yet because it's going to, uh, of course, we know this right from the Christian life. Uh, provident, God's providence has a lot to do with our, our comfort and our trust and our dependence, um, even in, in times of suffering. Uh, and then I'm writing a, a large, uh, more academic volume for, for all those nerds out there uh, like me. And uh, that'll be with Baker Academic. It'll be simply called uh, The Doctrine of God. And there I'm trying to uh, present um, Protestants in particular uh, and, and show us maybe our way back home, um, steering away from uh, some of the ways we have absorbed a, a modern doctrine of God Mm -hmm. and trying to retrieve and recover um, a, a classical Christian doctrine of God. So yeah. that'll be a beefy volume. Uh, it'll, it, it won't be uh, coming for a couple of years, so I'm, I'm afraid folks will have to be a little bit patient. <laughs> it takes long to write books. I should it know I've, I've written nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it is very, I love to write. Um, I really do. But, but you're right. It does take a lot of time and research and um it's extremely difficult. So <laughs> the words don't always just, uh, you know, fly off the keyboard like people think. <laughs> but you would think when you just open up the book, it's like, oh, this is flowing nicely. But it's a lot of work to get one paragraph the way you want it. It takes a lot of work. So that's exactly right. Lots of sweat and blood involved. Um, that's right. Yeah. Well, let's hope, let's hope not not blood. That, that's that, 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 the conversation got dark very quick. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. Well, um, okay. So I want to I want to tackle this kind of in a, in a logical sense. So so we're going to try to address the issue of sola scriptura and the Trinity um, because those are two areas that I think um, uh, you have a lot of helpful things to say. And so I figured I'm kind of thinking off the top of my head because because it is the scriptures that we learn about the triune nature of God. Let's start with sola scriptura, and then our latter part will move into. Uh, the Trinity, and perhaps you can kind of highlight, and I have actually, um, this wasn't what I was planning in my mind, but I actually have a question about uh, the Trinity that perhaps you address in your book, and maybe you can unpack that as well. So, right. Um, all right, so, so so let's begin with definitions. Now, folks who, who follow my show, they most likely will know what the doctrine of Sola Scriptura is, but why don't you lay out, uh, number one, what is Sola Scriptura? And number two, what is Sola Scriptura not? Because I know there are a lot of misconceptions as to what that that doctrine is. Why don't you unpack that for us? Uh, well, answering that question is is actually half the battle, isn't it? Yes. Uh, because <laughs> uh, in my experience, at least, and maybe this is yours too, maybe this is the experience of, of many of those listening or watching, um, oftentimes we talk past each other uh, because we, we actually 
uh, don't understand what sola scriptura mean, means and, and maybe more importantly, what it does not mean. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. In my book, God's Word Alone, I start off right at the beginning and try to address it uh, right out of the gate. And I, I basically say there that uh, sola scriptura, it means that only scripture, uh, because it is God's inspired word. So that, that qualification is really important. Sure. Um, only scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority uh, for the church. Uh, now, there's a lot we could say there. Um, I think the, the first thing uh, that maybe pops out is that the reason uh, as Protestants that we are appealing to Scripture as our final court of appeal, just to, to use that phrase, um, has everything to do with the doctrine of inspiration. In other words, if Scripture is not, as Paul says to Timothy, breathed out by God, um, then we don't have any basis on which to make this claim. So sure. that has to be said first and foremost, because oftentimes people will jump into debates about sola scriptura, and uh, especially in the 21st century, they may not or may not be, may or may not be assuming that scripture is breathed out by God in the first place. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so if, if, if we're not on the same page there, then the conversation over sola scriptura in one sense never gets off the ground. Hmm. So it's only because uh, God himself has breathed out his word, or as, as Peter likes to say, that the spirit has uh, carried along the, the, these biblical authors so that hmm. what they say is what God says and what God says is what, what they have said. Uh, unless that is true, then we actually uh, don't have uh, a basis on which to then say the rest, which is that scripture is trust, trustworthy and truthful. Uh, scripture is sufficient, though, again, we will want to explain what that means and doesn't mean, uh, or that scripture is our, our final authority. Mm -hmm. um, if I can elaborate just a tad, I, sure. I would say uh, when we are when we move to inerrancy, for example, uh, here again, sola scriptura comes into the picture because we're not saying that uh, scripture is only uh, truthful um, in terms of its big message. Uh, we're, we're actually saying that because scripture is um, breathed out by God, well, it reflects God. In other words, uh, this is a God who, as Jesus says, is truth himself. Hmm. And so uh, we can trust, this is very relevant then to the life of the church and the Christian life. Yeah. We can trust that the word of God is also truthful and trustworthy in all hmm. that it and all that it does say. And, and notice sure. how I'm, I'm trying to, to say that carefully. In, in all that it asserts, um, it is it is trustworthy. And from there, we move. We can move into um, conversations about sufficiency. Well, um, if it's breathed out by God, and and if it is actually trustworthy, uh, because the God um, who breathes out this word is a God of truth. Well, then, what does that mean then for its sufficiency? Um, did God actually intend 
for example, for his word to actually guide and lead uh, his people? Uh, I think so. And so when we go back to the Old Testament, um, this isn't just a New Testament uh, doc- doctrine, so to speak, but when we go back to the Old Testament, we see that the God who establishes a covenant with his people always uh, makes sure, we see this with Israel, as soon as she is uh, taken out of Egypt and, and uh, redeemed and, and, and then uh, brought into this uh, covenant with God, we see this almost immediately with Moses. Um, this God of the covenant makes sure that the people of the covenant have a constitution of the covenant. In other words, um, he doesn't just redeem them, but he redeems them and then shows them how to live in in the way of this covenant. Well, that's Mm -hmm. only, that can only happen um, if there is um, a sufficiency to, to his word. Now um, I'll I'll throw back to you because I, I, I'm sure there's a lot more to say here, but um, I think what I would want to to then talk about next is then maybe what sola scriptura sola scriptura does not mean. <laughs> yes, because there, there seems to be a lot of misconceptions as to, it's like oh it's just you your Bible alone you are your your own pope you know uh, you're just left to yourself to interpret scripture and so you know there are a bunch of terrible things that follow from that. So so what are we not saying when we affirm sola scriptura? Well, uh, I think maybe some history can help us here. Um, Heiko Obermann, um, he is he is dead now, but um, he really was one of the outstanding uh, historians of the last century. Okay, and uh, Obermann, uh, in so much of his work on medieval and Reformation history, he made a very important distinction, um, and the distinction is between different types of tradition. Uh, He distinguished between tradition one and tradition two, and then what he calls tradition zero. (laughs) Okay. Um, What does he he mean by these? Well, uh, when he is referring to tradition one, he has in mind the reformers and actually those who came before them, the patristic and and even uh, certain medieval fathers, who believe that uh, scripture uh, is... Uh, scripture alone is the inspired written revelation of God. Um, now notice it's called tradition one because um, they very much affirm tradition. Okay. In other words, they saw tradition as really crucial and instrumental. Sure. Uh, helping us to understand the scriptures correctly, um, keeping us accountable. We think of, for example, many of the great Uh, Orthodox creeds of the Christian faith, the Nicene Creed, the the Chalcedon definition, and many others, uh, which they labored so hard over to make sure that they were using words that actually held the church accountable to the scriptures and clarified the scriptures, especially in the midst of so much confusion and heresy. Um, This also was the belief of the reformers. Um, The reformers had a very high view of tradition, um, and so uh, right away, uh, we, we, have to, we have to really emphasize this because I think sometimes they get painted as if um, they're dis- discarding tradition. In fact, uh, when Rome accused them of novelty and innovation and therefore heresy, uh, the reformers quipped back and said, absolutely not. Uh, we are 
Augustinians in our soteriology, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, Bruce Gordon in his biography of Calvin has this great statement where he says, if, if you would have went back to the 16th century and said to Calvin um, that Rome was Catholic, he, Calvin would have been sick to his stomach. <laughs> Uh, because by Catholic with a, a small C, meaning universal, sure. um, Calvin and the other reformers, that was that was the whole purpose of their existence, was they were trying to show, no, no, we are actually more Catholic, believe it or not, we are more Catholic than Rome, uh, because we are we are actually more consistent mm-hmm. um, with the Christian heritage than Rome and and some of the then the innovations they then said Rome was was uh, putting on the church. So this is an important clarification. And sometimes yeah. with history, we, we're not always careful in this regard. Now, all that said, all that said, um, at the end of the day, though, uh, the reformers and many of the, the fathers before them clarified that, um, yes, they have a high view of tradition and see it as, as really instrumental. But nonetheless, uh, what type of authority is it? Well, it's a ministerial authority. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it is an authority. Uh, in other words, we're not saying that Scripture is the only uh, source of authority. Right. Um, we're saying that it's the final authority. And so the reformers were really careful at that point to say, well, tradition is a ministerial authority, and Scripture alone is our magisterial magisterial authority. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that? Well, because Scripture alone is is breathed out by God as our definitive, permanent, written revelation. Well, From there, uh, yeah, do you want to jump in? Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, so, okay, so uh, I, I know a lot of people will say, well, the Reformers and, and Protestants, they, they'll say that the Reformers tip their, you know, they 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 say they respect tradition, but it's it's merely just a tipping of the hat. <laughs> uh, perhaps you can give uh, an example or two as to how tightly and how important tradition was yeah. to the Reformers while also making the distinction between the different level of authority, that ministerial, magisterial aspect. Yeah, uh, there's a fantastic book. It's an older book, but you can still find it uh, if you if, if you look hard. Um, it's by Anthony Lane. Okay. And I think it's just called John Calvin. So we'll use Calvin as an example here. Okay. And uh, the book is uh, so, it's tremendous because um, the book very carefully, chapter by chapter, demonstrates that Calvin was a patristic scholar hmm. and and not just patristic, but, but even a medieval, the older he got, uh, the, the more of an expert he became. Okay. Um, why, why is, why, why would Anthony Lane write a book like this? Um, uh, which is so, you know, specific, well, he's trying to demonstrate uh, exactly what he's trying to answer that very question you raise. Okay. Uh, in other words, Someone like John Calvin, when you read his institutes, you start to discover, goodness, he is simply echoing the patristic witness before him at every turn. <laughs> mm. Now, why would he why would Calvin be so obsessed with doing that? Uh, because it, it's everywhere. Um, it's, it's echoed in the very phrases he uses. Um, it's uh, it's infused throughout the very doctrines he is claiming to 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 teach and believe in. Why would he be so fixated on, on, on demonstrating his patristic continuity? Sure. Uh, well, it goes back to, to really what we just, what we just said. Um, if you look at uh, when Calvin got kicked out of Geneva, 
Um, we, we'll, that's another story. But um, <laughs> it was really during that time that Cardinal uh, Sadaletto wrote to the Genevans and said, come back to Rome, come back, come back mm -hmm. to, to, uh, your, to Mother Church. And uh, long story short, but eventually Calvin gets an invitation to say, hey, can you respond? Uh, can, mm -hmm. can, can you respond and, and write a letter that can serve, uh, ironically, <laughs> the, very, the very people that uh, just kicked you out? Um, and, and so he does, I, uh, which tells you something about his humility. I don't know if I could have yep. done that, but, but he does. <laughs> um, and one of, the, one of the things he argues in, in there is, is that um, well, he talks about really two things, the formal principle and the material principles of the Reformation. Um, sola, sola Scriptura and justification by faith alone. Okay. Uh, but one of the, uh, you can tell almost immediately, one of the burdens on his back is he wants to demonstrate to the Genevans that uh, the Reformation, as they know it, is not an innovation. Okay. Uh, and therefore, it's not, it's not heretical. In other words, they haven't, uh, as much as Rome was, was saying, uh, you know, someone like Sadaletto was saying, uh, you have you have strayed. You've left the church. Calvin was was making the argument. No, actually, we are trying to reform and renew the church mm -hmm. uh, according to its true identity. In other words, what Calvin is saying is, you're, you you Genevans are are actually more Catholic than you realize. Again, Catholic with a small c. Sure, sure. Um, and, and from there, he he goes on to make that argument. Um, now, in order to make it, Scripture then is going to serve as his uh, magisterial authority. Um, but in order to clarify um, what scripture actually means, because remember, both Rome and Protestants, are, they're both quoting scripture. <laughs> right. Um, in order to clarify that, he's going to go to the church fathers, and he's going to demonstrate uh, time after again that uh, whether it's justification, uh, whether it's uh, scripture, uh, whether it's uh, the atonement, in, in, in so many different ways he's going to demonstrate actually the reformation is in continuity uh okay. with the church catholic the church universal which did believe uh in the, the primacy sure and the um uh in scripture as as our final court of appeal now now i want to rest right there because uh, within the context of providing an apologetic for sola scriptura that is probably the thing i've heard the most in terms of uh the doctrine of sola scriptura not being in continuity. No one has taught the doctrine of sola scriptura, <laughs> uh, and and so yeah. and and not only are, are Protestants accused of kind of like this is innovative and it's not something that was believed in the early church. Um, they're also accused of mishandling the patristics when they appeal to them to defend that there is continuity. So yeah. why don't you, uh, for, for those who are really, they, they want to know how to provide a response uh, to these sorts of objections. How would you um, help folks along who, who get this objection? It's innovative and yeah, you can find a church father here or there that sounds like it's supporting that, but really, you know, that's not really the case. How, how would you, how would you help someone out who's struggling with that? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is recognize that what we are, uh, what the reformers were saying here about sola scriptura really changes the conversation. In other words, when we uh, look back at the Reformation, it's not as uh, so oftentimes it's kind of pitched at a popular level. It's, it's not a debate between scripture, the reformers and tradition, which is Rome. 
Right. Uh, you can tell that even from the way we just set things up, right? That uh, actually, and, and Oberman makes this, play, this uh, point so well. He says, really, it's a debate between tradition and tradition, though one type of tradition and a different type of tradition. Okay. And, and that's really helpful because uh, Oberman goes on to say, well, then what is tradition two? Um, tradition two, which he associates with uh, certain um, late medieval uh, individuals, as well as what will become the Roman Catholic Church with Trent and, and everything after, uh, he says, well, tradition two, um, it too believes in scripture's inspiration and its trustworthiness and, and authority. However, uh, he argues that for these individuals, uh, tradition becomes a second, uh, a second source of revelation itself. Now, uh, that's different. Uh, that's, that's actually quite a bit different. Though it sounds technical, that's quite a bit different from tradition one, which we just talked about. Because now, all of a sudden, um, and you see this in the late medieval period on the eve of the Reformation, there is a conflict, even within those who go the route of tradition too, because then you have to answer the question, well, if tradition is a, is a second source of divine revelation itself, perhaps one that could be equal to, or maybe even greater than uh, scripture, mm -hmm. uh, if that's the case, then who decides? Who gets to decide uh, who is the, the authority? And so you have a split in the late medieval period between those uh, who say it's it's a council and those who say it's the papacy. Uh, uh, you can actually go uh, back some ways into uh, the, the late medieval um, conflict and you begin to have popes excommunicating each other, excommunicating each other uh, mm -hmm. in part over, over this very issue. Uh, vine for power to determine who who is going to be that pope, right. and and each pope saying it's me, and another pope saying no, actually it's me, and and as a result, actually excommunicating one another. Mm -hmm. um, on the other side of that, you have uh, uh, others saying, well, actually it should be a council, um, and certain uh, conciliaris, and uh, they then are, are having a, a conflict with those who are. Are saying it's the papacy. It becomes mm -hmm. quite it becomes quite uh, a mess that um, the church has to try to clear up in the, the decades and centuries ahead. Now, mm -hmm. why do I bring all that up? Because when you uh, enter into the 16th century, um, and and this is so prevalent today, even in the way that uh, people describe sola scriptura or interpret the Reformation. Um, oftentimes, what happens is. Uh, they confuse sola scriptura. Usually critics uh, confuse sola scriptura with what we might call nuda scriptura. Hmm. Uh, and this brings us to the third category, tradition three. Um, these were the radicals. Um, okay. And there were many of them. There are many different types. Um, so we, we do want to be fair there. But to one degree or another, uh, many of them held to tradition zero. <laughs> Okay. As you can, as you can tell from the name, um, they took that quite seriously. In other words, they looked at history and they said, "Well, uh, the the church has more or less been lost. Uh, it's, it's just been all dark uh, since the apostles." But but thank God we're here now. 
<laughs> Very humble uh, position to hold. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, what came along with that was not merely appealing to Scripture as the final court, court of appeal, mm-hmm. but actually then saying, well, we don't, we don't look to anything but Scripture. Now, this yeah. led to all kinds of problems and, and quite a bit of chaos because not all, but some of these radicals then said, well, uh, we have the spirit and uh, mm. the spirit can even speak through me in a way that uh, supersedes the scriptures. Right. And, and you can see uh, it, it starts to, to unravel because like you, you hinted at at the beginning, uh, all of a sudden it's not so much about scripture as it is about about me <laughs> and and me as an individual. And so um, all that to say, I think sometimes uh, when we talk about this debate, the reformers get, and, and even Protestantism as a whole, gets misunderstood as tradition zero, as, as the radicals, when, it, when in actuality they labored and they were so frustrated Sure. because they labored so hard to say, no, that, that you are confusing us with those radicals. Um, would you, Dr. Barrett, would you equate uh, the radicals with the folks who, who hold to solo scriptura as opposed to sola scriptura? You said yeah. scriptura. Is that the same yeah. thing? Can you differentiate that for us? Yeah. No, you're getting at the same thing. That's just another okay. another good way to put it. Solo okay. scriptura, uh, playing with the Latin a little bit there. But yeah, no, you're exactly right. Sure. Um, so all that to say, you know, to get back to your question, I, I know I'm getting off track a little bit here, but all that to say that uh, when we talk about sola scriptura, uh, first thing first, we, we we have to really clarify what we mean and don't mean here. Right. Uh, we're not denying tradition. Actually, tra- tradition is quite instrumental. But what we are denying uh, is that uh, tradition becomes magisterial as a second and equal or even greater source of revelation. Mm-hmm. And yet we're simultaneously <laughs> denying uh, those radicals who go the direction of solo scriptura or nuda scriptura uh, and start to turn scripture into their own individualistic uh, uh, authority, using it in a way that dispenses with the church rather than preserves right. the church across history. So, um, all right. So uh, let's take another another look at another popular objection that I, that I often hear. And it's, um, it's usually associated with the idea that, um, if, uh, you know, sola scriptura has led to so much division. So for example, it's the reason why we have, you know, I don't know what the number is now, but a bajillion, quajillion, quintuplein denominations in existence today, <laughs> the number keeps changing. Um, how would we respond to uh, that sort of objection that, you know, this is what happens when you accept sola scriptura, you have all of the, these denominations that can't agree on anything. How would you respond to that? Well, I think I would give two responses. So there's probably many more. Sure. Uh, the first one has to do with history. Okay. Um, and the second one, again, comes back to uh, what what were the reformers after in okay. terms of the gospel uh, when they talked about Sola Scriptura? So, so maybe we can take both of those on just briefly. Um, the first one, history. Um, usually this type of objection comes from uh, Roman Catholicism. Okay. Um, 
when it's lobbed, um, I'm not sure. Uh, well, one of two things are going on. <laughs> Either the person is is not being completely transparent about the history of Roman Catholicism, even since the Reformation, um, or or they don't know that history. Okay. Uh, in other words. Um, even, even think about the conversation we just had about the late Middle Ages, uh, when you have different popes excommunicating each other. Uh, it was not uniform by any stretch of the imagination. Um, in fact, even when you look at, we mentioned Calvin and Sadoletto, um, even when you look at uh, some of these debates, uh, very often the reformers will say to uh, those uh, their, their opponents, what about the East? Hmm. Where's the East in this? Have, have, have you just completely condemned all the entire Eastern church for, for how many centuries? In other words, they're, they're, they're not really actually asking about the East so much as they are making a point hmm. um, that you're, you're claiming um, you're, you're making this claim as if, you know, you alone are the one true church, but they're pointing out, this is extremely narrow, sure. extremely narrow. Um, you're actually removing the entire Eastern church from the conversation. And then it's not entirely uh, that straightforward is, a, is another point they're making, because even when you look at the church uh, of the 15th and 16th centuries, um, you're starting to notice, well, even within your own ranks, there is very fierce debates between the conciliarists on the one hand and the curious on the other, those who are claiming councils and those who are claiming the papacy. Hmm. Now that is just that's just uh, that early modern history. Even since then, um, those who have studied the history of of Rome since the since the 16th century will also note it is anything but uniform. Um, sure. Just look at the rise of Protestant liberalism um, in the modern era. That alone has created huge divides within within the Church of Rome. Uh, just as it has affected uh, Protestant denominations in, in serious ways as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's the first thing I want to clarify is to okay. say, okay, we can have this conversation, but we will be honest about the divisions in our camp if you're right. honest as well about the divisions in your own camp. Sure. It's not as uniform uh, and clear black and white as sometimes people say. The the second, though, let's maybe just briefly touch on that second Okay. Issue. You know, we've been talking about sola scriptura, but why were the why were the reformers even appealing to the authority of scripture? Uh, well, they were doing so because they believe that that the scriptures give to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luther has this great statement where he says that um, the scriptures are the swaddling clothes of baby Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> He's good at stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's, it, he is. That's one of the reasons why, he, you know, even if you don't have to be a Lutheran to, to just sure extremely appreciate uh, so much of, and, and even disagree with him at points with so much of what he says. But I, I think his point there is important. Um, in other words, what he's trying, what he's trying to point out is that uh, yes. Okay. Rome was, was telling them you're the innovators, you're the heretics. Um, but one of the points Luther is trying to make there is the whole reason we are appealing to the scriptures is because when we look at, uh, what's happening in the papacy, and even at the popular level at the church of his day, um, 
their understanding of salvation uh, seems out of sync uh, with okay. what the scriptures are saying. Sure. And um, I think at that point, uh, Luther, and it's not just him, it's many, many others. We go to the English Reformation and talk about Tyndale and Cranmer and so many others. But one of the points they're trying to make then is that, well, sola scriptura then means that uh, we are in continuity with the past because we are actually retrieving the gospel of the mm -hmm. church Catholic, the church universal. Well, that that's a very different perspective then, because sure. all of a sudden, it we'll think of it from, from this vantage point, right? We've got Lutherans and we've got Presbyterians and we've got Baptists over my side of the world and um, we've got, uh, and we could go on, right? Um, but when we are talking about our heritage, well, yes, we have disagreements over the, the form of baptism, for example. We might have disagreements over the exact nature of church polity. Sure. Um, and, and so, yeah, practically, uh, uh, visibly, sure. that means that my brother or sister in Christ is going to go drive down the street to their Lutheran church while that same Sunday I drive down the other street to my Baptist church. Right. However, do we have shared fellowship and continuity over the most important things? Right. Absolutely. So, so you would say that there is a unity within the divisions of the multiple denominations. There is a unity with respect to the essentials. And there is disunity with respect to important but non-essential, non-definitional doctrines. Would I, would I be correct there? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And so uh, that that means then that, well, we don't just look at unity in terms mm -hmm. of the naked eye, right? If we do that, then then we're actually putting, we're actually resting our, our identity on something quite surface level. Rather, what... What kind of unity are we after? We, we're after a unity that gets at the very heart of Christianity, which sure. has to do with who is God and how has he revealed himself and how has he redeemed us through his son, Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, on those major pillars of Christianity, uh, it's at that point where uh, we say, actually, we are one with one another on, on the things that matter. And that's where... I think when you go back to the Reformation, the reformers actually take great, um, well, they, they come in great conflict with their opponents because they're saying, hey, listen, it's not that we we are not serious about unity as well, but we're actually saying we are more serious because we, we are after the type of unity over major things that, that we think have been muddied. Hmm. Now, that's a that changes the conversation again because now it's not an issue of who, who is after unity and who isn't. Now, actually, it's, what type of unity are we after? And I think at that point, um, Protestantism actually has has a pretty strong case to make. Hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, that that's super helpful. And um, I, I do apologize for the people listening. We're, we're actually going to shift gears now. Okay. <laughs> we're going to shift gears. Um, I, it's excellent. I actually want to take a couple of snippets, maybe make some shorter videos that kind of... Uh, um, pack down some of the short, quick answers to some of these important questions. So that you've given us a lot to think there. Uh, I want to shift gears to the very easy and simple topic of the Trinity. Okay. Uh, and I mean that of course, uh, sarcastically, um, when 
I'm going to assume everybody knows what the Trinity is just for the sake of uh, moving along. But um, why did you write this book? And what is the main, what are you trying to accomplish in this specific book? And then I want to ask uh, some other questions related to the Trinity that I think your book addresses, but I haven't gotten to yet, um, yeah. which deals with social Trinitarianism and, and simplicity and things like that. Uh, but, but why did you write this book? Why did you wake up one day and said, you know, I'm going to write a book called Simply Trinity uh, and I want to accomplish uh, some task uh, that you're trying to set out to accomplish? What, what inspired you to write this? Well, I think you, you probably have to either be insane or a fool to write a book on the Trinity. Uh, if you <laughs> just wake up one morning and think that that sounds like uh, that sounds like something I should do. <laughs> um, you know, as Augustine said uh, so well, uh, when it comes to the Trinity, uh, never is is erring, committing errors so so dangerous. Sure. At the same time, though, he said um, the, the fruit that comes from it, well, never, never is it more enjoyable uh, and, and so consequential for the church. Right. So um, in that spirit, the reason that I wrote this book, though, uh, it actually comes back to um, some of my own experience in within evangelicalism. OK. Um, for many, many decades, um, and, and this is an experience that's not, it's not unique to me. Um, it's, it's been the experience of many, many others. Um, uh, for many decades, those uh, core uh, doctrines that are, are so key to a biblical and orthodox understanding of the Trinity, uh, well, uh, in, they've, they've, they've been lost in many ways. Uh, or, or looked at with great suspicion. Um, for for the longest time, a, a doctrine like the eternal generation of the sun, which in for for most of history was considered essential to the Trinity. You you can't you can't have a Trinity uh, without it. Um, you certainly don't have a Nicene Creed without it. Right. Um, doctrines like this all of a sudden were questioned or or abandoned. Now, interestingly enough. This is not unrelated to our prior conversation, um, okay. because I think as evangelicals, especially sometimes we can't maybe without realizing it, maybe with realizing it, we can start to slip from sola scriptura into solo scriptura. And um, I think more and more that this comes out, um, not so much with what we say about scripture, but how we read scripture. Okay. That's oftentimes right where the rubber meets the road. Sure. Um, and so I think evangelicals took a, just assumed in many ways uh, a certain approach to scripture that said, well, if I can't find a chapter and verse for it, then then I'm just not going to believe it. Or if I'm not persuaded by a certain word study, then then I'm just I'm going to move on and, and discard that part of my theology. So it's a really terrible way to to read the Bible. First of all, it doesn't matter if we're talking about the Trinity or not. Um, doesn't really do justice to, to what the Bible is or, or to how we should read it as a whole. But on, on top of that, it really is the death of theology, if you think about it. Um, anyway, long story short, this type of, uh, I would call it a, a type of biblicism in, in the negative sense of that word. Okay. And so we're not talking about sola scriptura at this point. Um, but this type of biblicism, um, I think, had major consequences in which um, the Trinity was redefined 
Um, so doctrines like eternal generation were, were jettisoned. Um, at the same time, um, maybe without even knowing it at points, we started to redefine uh, what a person is. Um, and we started to define a person much more like we would define human persons. Mm. And we start defining the Trinity much more like a human society. Yeah. You see where I'm going with this? It's um, almost like a, a blurring of the creator creature distinction. And we're kind of bringing, right. bringing God down to, to our level so we could, so we could understand him. That's exactly right. And so uh, maybe unwittingly, but, but still we start to describe and define the Trinity as just a, a type of, cooperative society um, or we start to define persons more in the individual sense that that we would think of when we think of you and me as persons sure. uh, persons having their own roles or or even they're even being hierarchy or or perhaps uh, uh, they're, they're even being uh, separation in terms of your will and my will mm-hmm. um, or it, notice when we start to think along those lines, if we import that back into God, uh, all of a sudden we start to inch a lot closer to tritheism mm. uh, in which you have individuals uh, who have their own wills, their own centers of consciousness. It, it can get a bit scary. I mean, I've, I've even heard some evangelicals um, start to talk about the persons as if they can work apart from each other or without each other. Sure. Um, which, which was just inconceivable prior to the, the, the last century. What's happening? Well, what, what, what's going on? Um, I think that we've done this without realizing it in many ways. We've just assumed. Um, and, but if you, again, this is where history is so important, right? If you go back and look at the 20th century, it's not as surprising uh, because in the 20th century, you have this, this shift take place, or in my book, I call it a Trinity drift in which so, so many of the ways that, that uh, the church has, has really defined very carefully, according to scripture, defined the Trinity in terms of its unity or its simplicity. And then in terms of, of distinctions, the father is unbegotten, the son is begotten, the spirit is spirit. All of these, these things sort of get re, uh, rejected or, or really just kind of um, redefined or neglected. And instead um, you have the rise of, of social Trinitarianism. It's really ironic because there's this uh, party taking place in the 20th century saying, hey, we've revived the Trinity. (laughs) But more recently, um, there's been all kinds of people, you think of like uh, the historian Lewis Ayers who have come along and said, wait a minute, what kind of Trinity though? Uh, It seems like this is more of of a social Trinity. Uh, so I want to I want to rest there for a second. So so I've heard and you let me know and I and I um, one of the areas that I need to work on as an apologist is really my history, knowing the historical um, dialogue and context of why I believe what I believe. And in some areas I, I've got it, but other areas I need a lot of work. And so um, in the midst of my own personal study, I, I don't study as much as I'd like because I just don't have the time. But um, I've adopted language from people that I listen to. So as I'm studying, I listen to podcasts and I, and you know, in real life, you're not always thinking, well, what's the, his, the, the historical, you know, <laughs> you're, not, you're not thinking about that all the time. So, so the language right. that I use, and I know other people do this, are, are is the language that you hear other apologists and other theologians, theologians that you respect. And so we could adopt some of that language and actually not necessarily reflect what, what, what's supposed to be accurate with respect to some of these doctrines. So, um, I've heard people define the Trinity, and I think I've defined it this way as well, 
Um, we can have a theological definition. Um, we could have a definition along the lines of using propositions within scripture and conglomerate them together and come up with a doctrine, which I think is what is a good way to do it. But there's also a more philosophical way that I've heard it defined. And, and perhaps you could interact with this definition. Here's what I've heard. Okay. The Trinity is the idea that there is one being who is God, who has three centers of consciousness. Each center has the characteristics of personhood. Uh, so how would you um, how would you interact with that specific? Is that definition reflecting one of these positions that are controversially debated today? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're onto something there. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've defined it that way. On when people uh, people ask me, "Oh, so are you a social trinitarian?" I'm like, I don't know what that is, and I and I studied theology, so I haven't really been well, on the current discussion there. And and here's where. You know, to, to be perfectly honest, um, and I actually start the book this way. I say we're, we're drifting. And uh, honestly, this is not I'm not saying this as, a, you know, sort of pointing the finger. Sure. Uh, this is something that is coming from within my own training. And and just it's in the air that we breathe. And, and so mm -hmm. I even say with you know, even with a little embarrassment, you know what, actually, this is just what we've assumed, kind of like you're talking about. Sure. Um, so, so all that to say, it's not. Um, I like to tell people that it's not so much like, oh, okay, we've got this view of the Trinity and that view of the Trinity, or this view. Uh, I think what's happened is actually we have a an an orthodox understanding of the Trinity that prevailed for goodness uh, 1,700 years. And then you hit the modern period and things change and they change radically. Um, now, there's a whole history here we don't have to go into, but um, I would point to fingers like Jürgen Moltmann, who's very honest. I appreciate that, at least, about him. And he just comes out and says it. Uh, he, he's very critical of, of, say, the you know the Nicene heritage. And he just says, we need to redefine the Trinity in terms of, of a society. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, what's so... What, uh, he, from there, he he really puts his foot on the gas because right. at that point, once he starts defining the persons um, in, in term in terms of uh, of a society, all of a sudden he can make uh, go directly for human society and say, "Look, we've got we've got the paradigm, we've got the prototype." Then, and for him, it's politics, right? Sure. For him, it's politics. the The irony, though, is that everyone else follows suit. And for others, it's ecclesiology. For others, it's gender debates. For others, it's e ecology. I mean, it just goes on. Homosexuality. I mean, it, it's it's endless. So what what is happening here? Well, I think what's happened is there's been a redefinition of person uh, that's been at, at the core of this. When you go uh, person in terms of each person, much like us, right? You know, we're here here we are talking. You're your own person. I'm my own person. We might have a type of cooperative unity on this podcast um but but you have your own will and i have my own will and it's different <laughs> and we might even disagree we might even uh, we 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 have you have your own center of consciousness i have my i mean we could go on and on and list the ways right sure we have to i think we have to be really careful at this point right that we don't just assume or we could even talk about relationships, right? Uh, you, we have a, a good relationship with each other, but but what we mean we mean by that is not the type of unity we mean when we talk about God. Sure, uh, it actually falls quite short. So 
notice here, we have to be really careful that we're not just uh, projecting, as I call it, our just assumptions about uh, how person should be defined back onto God. Because with God, things are very different than that. And the unity we we're after is actually quite different. So when we talk about God, for example, yes, we distinguish the persons, right? Uh, let's just take the son, for example. Uh, I think a good biblical case can be made that um, when we talk about uh, the son, uh, we can refer to uh, what what is it that distinguishes the son? Well, uh, I think we have good biblical reasons to say, well, uh, apart from the world, so we're not talking here about the incarnation, <laughs> we're talking about eternity. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, a timeless existence when we talk about God. Uh, so apart from the world, apart from creation, apart from salvation, this is the son, and we call him son. Scripture calls him son. Why? Because he's from the father. It's almost too simple to say, right? <laughs> Uh, that's what it means to be son. It means to be begotten. Of course, this is God we're talking about, right? right. So since this is God we're talking about, uh, the church fathers were really adamant at this point. You know, be careful here. We don't want to just project all the human things that go along with sonship back on God. This is an eternal begetting. Do now, you think that there's a blurring then uh, between the uh, communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God so that sometimes people will take or try to relate to the incommunicable attributes of God by kind of drawing these parallels uh, from a human perspective? Is that what is going on or, or am I off track here? Um, I think perhaps I, I'd, I'd have to hear more, but I, okay. since you mentioned attributes, uh, I'm not sure if this is what, what you're after, but um, when we talk about God, right, mm -hmm. um, whether it's God's unchanging nature, his immutability, or maybe it's his holiness, or maybe it's his love, no matter what attribute or perfection we're talking about, uh, well, all three persons of the Godhead have these in common. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is the reason why, um, and that, and, right, that's really different than, than, than how we're persons. <laughs> Sure. Because I, I might be more loving and um, and you might be more holy or something like that. Or, or you might be more loving and I'm I'm quite a mean person. I mean, we just as human persons. Impossible. Impossible. Yeah, it just doesn't it just doesn't work that way. But sure. with God, it's very different. And so this is why, like when you go back to those the fourth century where all these debates were taking place and the fathers were trying to uh, really fight for the survival of Christian orthodoxy as we know it. Against over against certain heresies, uh, they were very adamant that okay, yes, uh, the son, for example, the son is distinguished as son because he's eternally begotten. Hmm. But then they would very quickly say, remember, remember, uh, this son is eternally begotten from the father's very nature. Uh, why did they say this? Well, because in the same breath, they're trying to make sure they are also pre preserving the son's equality. Right. And they would do something similar with the spirit, but in terms of spiration. Now, that that's very different than the way we talk about the training today. Um, and so they, both East and West, I, I think this has been another problem with history, is sometimes folks like to say, oh, the, it's problems with the West. It's not in the East is the way to go. No, it's both East and West. Both of them agree uh, to what we might call divine simplicity. 
And right. you see it there in, in, in what I just said, right? Uh, he's begotten from the Father's divine nature. In other words, what they're trying to make sure is, yes, we distinguish the Son, but the essence isn't some fourth thing out there that's detached. Sure. No, this, this essence subsists in, in these persons. And so they were really careful to make sure that there's, there's no wiggle room there, um, that, th that each person has in common the, the one simple uh, undivided, indivisible divine essence. Mm. Now, that's very different from the way that the Trinity is described today. But all you have to do is, you know, Google the Nicene Creed and you'll start to, to notice, goodness, uh, it's short, but they seem really concerned to preserve these ideas. Right. And, and they're even echoing the biblical language, true God yeah. of true God, light of light. Uh, these are some of the reasons they're doing so. Excellent. Well, I, I have uh, one more question. We're at the top of the hour, and um, I'm, I'm foisting this upon you, but it's okay if, if, if you're not up to it. Uh, would it be okay to take a couple of questions from the live audience here? Some people have some questions. It's it's sure. okay. I'll, I'll do my best. That's right. It, listen, <laughs> when, when I'm by myself and people have questions, I'm just like, that, don't know that one, and I'll just skip through. So there, there's no shame. Uh, but um, just with regards to the to the title, so Simply Trinity, the, uh, yeah. the unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our spirit. What do you mean by the unmanipulated Father, Son, yeah. and Spirit? Why Good did question. You, why'd you use yeah. that subtitle there? And that's really at the heart of the book. Um, uh, we we hinted at it just okay. kind of in passing a minute ago. Sure. Uh, when we were talking about really the the, the last century, the twentieth century, uh, and I said um, the Trinity. Uh, what once the Trinity's redefined in terms of a of a social paradigm, all of a sudden it becomes very convenient mm. uh, to to really use the Trinity or maybe even manipulate the Trinity for your social agenda. Um, right. uh, one way this has been put is that uh, in the 20th century, the Trinity has become everyone's social program. Now, I mentioned how with, you know, a, a, a major figure like Moltmann, he did this with politics. Well, for him, uh, redefining the Trinity as a, a, a society of equality, that meant for him, well, this is the perfect paradigm then for politics. And for him, that meant socialism. And you can see how he would then try to start making that case. Mm -hmm. um, what's so, well fascinating or maybe a little disturbing is that uh, that's not the end. He He's really not unique in that regard. Um, you have some social Trinitarian saying, well, I want to use a social Trinity for a high church polity, uh, for, for bishops and, and those under them being subordinate. Sure. Uh, others saying, no, 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 no. If we've got a social Trinity, then that's really our recipe for congregationalism. <laughs> then it moves to gender and you have egalitarians and complementarians both saying we've got the ace card the trinity uh to to justify then our vision of, of gender roles mm. it, it doesn't end there um I, in the beginning of, at the beginning of my book i i talk about this story about how i, I came home and i i was looking at all the books that, that i i had read on the wall just uh the bookshelf covered and i and I, it just hit me my goodness, we have used the Trinity for just about every social agenda under the sun. Could it be? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Have we maybe redefined the Trinity um, 
either for that purpose or we've redefined the Trinity and it's become all too convenient to, mm. to make that move. Maybe it's actually time to say, let's go back to the basics and actually ask the ask our some of our, our fathers who were studied and wrote commentaries on the scriptures, ask them, are we actually defining the Trinity right? Or or maybe we're maybe we're inconsistent with both scripture and what say you know the Nicene Creed has said. Hmm. Excellent. That's awesome. So I highly encourage folks to pick up Simply Trinity. And uh, you have to pick this one up. And of course, it's they're two and it's part of a trilogy. So you can't you can't have two movies if the if it's a trilogy. Come on, you need the all three books. There's having another one coming out, so you want to keep your uh, keep your attention for that. Um, all right. Well, we're up at the we're at the top of the hour. Let's take a couple of questions. Some of them may be uh, re re directly related, indirectly related, and uh, it's okay if if. When you, because sometimes people will type out a question and it's kind of like written weirdly. So, uh, we'll, we'll take it one at a time. Okay. All right. Baptized by Jesus says, uh, he quotes the scripture here. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he asks, How can Matthew 28 18, you know, reflect this idea of the Trinity? All power and authority, uh, in heaven and earth was given to Jesus. So what, what's going on there? How would you address a question coming from that angle? Well, this is very related to so much of what we talked about. We, di we didn't quite get into this, but okay. if, you, if you were to ask me, you know, how, how do you sum up what, what's gone wrong in, in the modern period with all of these uh, redefinitions of the Trinity? I, I think I would use one word. I would say conflation. In other right. words, we've conflated who God is in and of himself with uh what he does in what's called the economy mm. uh, sometimes it's referred to as the economy of salvation okay so when we when we look at uh this economy of salvation what do we discover uh one of the things that we discover is that the missions of the godhead uh well these are actually meant to reflect and uh near in an important way uh who this god is in and of himself so here's a just a an easy one you know why is it that the father sends the son uh well it's because this is the son who's begotten from the father from all eternity um now when we uh Sorry about that. My phone is. Uh... If you if you want to take a few seconds, it it won't be rude. It it, hap it happens. Okay. It's all right. Hold you on want one to... second. No worries. No worries. While while Doctor Barrett is gone, I'll take I'll take a quick stab at this question. Baptized by Jesus also asked, "Does a person have a brain?" Uh, that's actually if don't be annoyed at that question. If you if you hear it's like, well, who would ask that sort of question? It's actually a good question. Um, persons don't require brains. Um, if you understand. Uh, within uh, a biblical perspective, man is comprised of, of body and soul, and some people might want to hash that out, make a distinction between uh, spirit and soul. But there is an immaterial element uh, to uh, to human beings, and so while human beings have brains, uh, a brain is not a necessary component to being a person. I would argue that in the presence of the Lord, when I'm apart from my body, I will still be a person, although I won't have a physical brain uh, in that state. So, uh, thought I kind of take a stab at that quick question while you were gone. Okay, go ahead. If you want to finish your thought uh, based upon that uh, previous question there. Yeah. So sorry about that. But my, okay. uh, 
the point I was trying to make then is when we come to texts like like that one uh, in Matthew's gospel, uh, we have to be we have to be careful, right? Uh, because on the one hand, uh, what is the context, right? That's the whenever we read the Bible, we need to keep asking that question: What is the context in which this is said or this is taking place? The context is the economy. The context is the mission that Jesus is trying to accomplish. Okay. Remember what Scripture says. He humbled himself, which is just so scandalous, right? Yes. This is the son of God. Uh, and yet he humbles himself. He even to the point of death, uh, the New Testament said, or he he learns obedience. Now, of course, he this is the incarnation. Uh, yeah. he, we, he assumes a human nature to his person. Well, all of that then changes the conversation, because at, at that point, then we're not we're not talking about oh, there must be some type of hierarchy in God that's person-defining. Uh, goodness, that would that would be, uh, that would would be spell major consequences then for our doctrine of the Trinity. I don't know that we could have a doctrine of the, of the Trinity in which the persons are equal. Rather, what is taking place? Well, we're, we're being introduced uh, to the mission of the Son in the economy of salvation in which he has humbled himself so low uh, and then, and then he rises up victorious, and of course, then uh, he risen. He then has right. He he has this authority then to say to his disciples, "Go, go, make disciples in the name of the Trinity." Um, well, that's a ver- very different context then, and so sure. we have to be careful. We don't read everything that occurs in the incarnation by virtue of say the humanity of Christ into God and divinity and all three persons of the Godhead. All right. Excellent. Um, I remember you 12 asks, uh, in what ways does the eternal generation differ from Neoplatonic emanation? I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, um, that concept, but if you think you want to take a stab at it, go for it. If not, we can pass it. Well, when we talk about eternal generation, remember what we said is, uh, the fathers were really careful, right? To say, uh, almost immediately. Yes, this is generation or begetting. So this says something true, right? This is how scripture works. Uh, we, we, we are living and breathing within an analogical world. Uh, why? Because God's infinite. We're finite. Mm. Um, well, that means then that uh, when, when we come into contact with certain ideas or language, we have to keep that in mind. So yes, generation says something true. Uh, it tells us why the son is called son and the father is called father and, and this idea of fromness. Uh, and as mysterious as that may be, uh, it does say something true. But at the same time, right, the same time, immediately we have to say, this is God. Uh, this is an eternal begetting. And so all the things that you might assume, right, um, the, in this case, maybe with a type of emanation, uh, all the things you might assume that take place uh, with a human begetting don't don't start to impose those on God. Mm. Uh, I have a chapter in my book where um, I give a biblical case for eternal generation, um, but then I also have another chapter because it's just so important to to even being a Christian and even being Orthodox. Sure. I have another chapter where I actually try to explain it, and uh, in there I talk about the nine marks of an unhealthy generation, uh, <laughs> in which I, I I'm really trying to build off of everyone from say. Um, you know, the, the Cappadocian fathers to a Baptist like John Gill more recently sure. uh, to say, well, 
when we talk about generation, it doesn't mean that there's a, a multiplication of the divine essence. It doesn't mean there's a division of the divine essence. There's there's no change or mutation. There's no lessening. Uh, there's no hierarchy as a result. And I, and I go through and I list each one of those. Those might be helpful uh, as you try to then distinguish, okay, what does eternal generation mean and how does that differ then from other concepts? Hmm. Excellent. Um, guys, again, you want to check out Simply Trinity, None Greater, whoop, there we go, and his podcast. I was listening when I go uh, drive down to Virginia or up to New York or something like that. Um, your voice travels with me in my car. The, the podcast, you have so many excellent interviews and discussions there. Um, I highly recommend people subscribe uh, to the podcast and pick up uh, Dr. Barrett's book. Now, this is a last question. It's it's a doozy. I'm going to set it up, okay? Um, it, it's, it's very much related to the sorts of things that we talk about on this show. Um, as I mentioned before, we went live. This is an apologetics channel, but more specifically, uh, we do apologetics from a more presuppositional Vantillian perspective. So I'm not sure how much you're familiar with Vantill, but there's a question here related to the Trinity and uh, a, a concept that Vantill uh, thought the Trinity solved. So let me set up the context for folks. The question is by Brandon Corley, and thank you for your question, Brandon. What does Dr. Barrett think of Vantill's assertion? that the Trinity solves the problem of the one and the many. Now, for those who don't know what the problem of the one and the many is, um, it is a philosophical problem that deals with the question of what is the ultimate uh, grounding of reality? Is it an ultimate oneness or an ultimate manyness? Is reality at base one thing or a multiplicity of things? Um, and so Van Til uh, tried to uh, use the idea of the Trinity, who is equally and ultimately one and um, and equally and ultimately many. And so he thought that that solved the, this problem uh, with unity and diversity in the world. So setting that up, Dr. Barrett, do you have any thoughts on this or is this kind of out of left field? You're not really familiar with Van Til much. Not, not sure where you are there. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm bound to step on a few toes here. And, uh, <laughs> okay. And don't um, worry, and you probably, based on your comment, you might step on my toes, which is completely fine that stepping on toes comes with the territory, so no worries. Okay. I'll just okay. make a four-hour response video after we're done. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Oh, well, uh, the, first, the first thing I want to say to Brandon is, you know, uh, uh, just a, a word of encouragement that, you know, I'm so, I'm so encouraged that you're, you're really diving deep and uh, you're trying to think about these things. Um, and, and their implications. So, so well done there. Um, I will lay my cards on the table here, though. Um, and I don't think you, you um, I think that even uh, some Vantillians have, have recognized this. And so this isn't necessarily, you know, though, though some, might, some other Vantillians might disagree. There's different types of Vantillians out there. <laughs> Um, but um, well, this, you're my guest, so I'm gonna let you go. You can say whatever you want, man. Um, I know I'm gonna get an email. Eli, are you gonna respond? I'm. I'm that's, just. You, that's you, my you. job. I want to make sure when I get off here that your email, <laughs> your inbox just explodes, right? <laughs> you no, know, it's all. It's all good. Share your um, thoughts, man. I'm, I'm interested in what you have to say. Well, I'm not. Uh, let me just put it lightly. Uh, I'm not a fan of the way Van Til. Uh, describes the Trinity. <laughs> okay. Um, I think he. You now, there's. It's hard to do this in just a few minutes, but sure. um, the way that he can be a bit critical of traditional categories like persons, um, I 
two things come to mind. I'm, I'm a bit uh, skeptical whether he's understanding person uh, in, in maybe the, the traditional uh, way. Uh, but then also, I do wonder if, if maybe he's too quick to uh, release some of the, the traditional vocabulary or, or perhaps even try to use it for different purposes. So, so I, I just want to put that on the table because, um, and, and I've, I've even seen Van Tillian sort of, you know, uh, have this conversation or debate with each other. Sure, you know, sure. How far do we follow Van Till in terms of Right. Is exactly. I would agree. I would agree. I think I would agree with everything you said. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know just yet where you're going with it, yeah. <laughs> which might we might have been dizzy. But I would agree. Um, he definitely used language to describe the Trinity that can be very confusing and misleading. So um, I, even the most ardent Vantillian would <laughs> would say that he wasn't always the clearest uh, and used the best choice of words. So um, I would agree with you there. Uh, I'm just waiting for the conclusion, though. So. <laughs> Go um, I'll I'll just add. Um, so so that makes me a bit nervous then to when in answering this question to go to Van Til on the Trinity in order to use his specific understanding of the Trinity as then kind of solving the one in the many long historical question. Sure, if that makes sense. Um, okay. I I think I'd rather. Um, because of some of those misunderstandings or even wrong understandings of the Trinity from, from Van Til, I think I'd rather uh, go back and say, you know what, let, I think there's a case to be made to, to actually stick with the, the historic vocabulary. Okay. Um, and, and from there, um, can we talk about the one and the many? I think so. But again, um, in light of our whole conversation about social Trinitarianism, I wouldn't want to do it on those terms, sure. if that makes sense. And so, sure. yes, in one sense, uh, we can have that conversation about, okay, well, why, why is it that, um, why is it then that, that we see this dynamic take place in the world? But I guess I want to be careful that we don't use the Trinity like we were talking about and, and press it so far so that we're trying yeah. to look at every example of one of many in the world. Sure. And then, somehow kind of force the Trinity to, to explain it. I think if we do that, um, we, we might actually, um, well, we can risk actually uh, redefining the Trinity or using the Trinity in a way that it's just not meant to go there. Sure. Now, again, I'm good at stepping on some toes here, but uh, I, I think what I, I would say instead is the question of the one and the many actually and, and this is no offense to Van Til, but it's um, all the great philosophers are, are trying to wrestle with it, sure. right? And so in one sense, we could say, and I would encourage people to, to really dig in here, uh, you can go back in into history and, and look at, say, what some have called classical apologetics. Mm -hmm. um, and there's debate here, but I, I my, my opinion is that uh, the reform tradition actually does retrieve classical apologetics. Okay. When you look at it, uh, the question of the one of many is treated, uh, oftentimes though, it's it's treated from, from a much broader perspective, even a philosophical perspective that looks yeah. at uh, more traditional categories like um, uh, God is the first cause, for example, mm -hmm. uh, or, or just the way that the world is set up in terms of cause and effect. And and at that point, we might, we might be on better ground to then start approaching then um, 
some of the categories were given in special revelation. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. I apologize. Dr. No, Dr. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> I was like, see, you got me so upset. I'm just going to get rid of your PhD. You're, you're Mr. Barrett. Um, I wonder, are you familiar? I have it behind me. I'm sorry for being rude, for turning my back. Are you familiar? Okay, I don't want to take too much time. Are you familiar with Brant Bosterman's work on the Trinity? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Okay, bit. okay, because he tries to apply uh, Van Til's use of the Trinity uh, to solving that problem, and and he actually tries to be a, a, as ambitious as to as to try to argue why God must be one and three specifically. Very interesting. You might want to check it out. I think it's called the Vindication of now. See, now I need to know the title. Where is it, Mike? You ever you ever lose a book in your in your collection, Doctor Barrett? <laughs> Yes, all the time. <laughs> it's not even that big of a collection. I don't know. Oh, here it is. Thank you. There we go. Okay. You, you might be interested in it. Um, it's called The Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox, an Interpretation and Refinement of, Theolo of the Theological Apologetic of Cornelius Van Til. And there's some interesting uh, discussions. Uh, he goes into evidentialism, classicalism, and uh, let me see if I can show you an interesting page where... Um, he goes into exploring the 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 deficiencies of uh, a concept of binity or quadrinity, and why three is actually a necessity for the Trinity and, and preconditions for intelligible experience, and how all those things are related. So you might read it and say, "I completely disagree with him," but it's definitely an interesting uh, an interesting read. Um, but I'm always open to hearing some uh, some uh, differing positions on that, as I think, uh, just as a side note, folks who listen to my channel know this, I find that uh, topic in particular, the philosophical question and the relation of the Trinity to that question, very interesting. But I, I actually want to um, echo what Dr. Barrett uh, has mentioned here, and it really is the heart, really the heart of your book, I think, is that while we might be interested in applying the Trinity to these other areas, we don't want to be guilty of manipulating the Trinity and into uh, in bringing it into discussions that really, um, I think, are outside, uh, I think, appropriateness. Uh, we, we want to allow the Trinity to be the Trinity and to uh, use it in a way that is uh, biblically faithful and faithful to the historical descriptions of the Trinity within the context of orthodoxy. So um, folks might disagree as to how that's applied, but I think just as an overall principle, I think it's very important uh, to allow the Trinity to be the Trinity. And so I very much appreciate that sentiment, uh, Dr. Barrett. Um, well, we are at an hour and 20 minutes. I would like to thank you so much. I know you are so busy uh, just giving me your time. Um, I can talk about this stuff for hours. Uh, unfortunately, my kids will be home in a couple of minutes and I have a six-year-old a four-year-old and a three-year-old. It's oh, going to blessed, be. Then. It's going to be very loud, very, very soon. So, um, would you? Would you have any closing comments or, or, or anything you'd like to share um, with anyone before we sign off? You know, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's it's been wonderful to be on. Uh, great to to see so many people asking questions, um, and uh, this is why you know I, I I wrote the book Simply Trinity and. Um, uh, so encouraged by uh, just so much of the interest and in, uh, the deep things of God. Well, amen. Well, we definitely, definitely appreciate your work and I'm going to continue to follow your work, your books and your podcasts, which again, I'm going to say it again before we sign off guys, <laughs> go to uh, iTunes and download the Credo um, podcast 
excellent discussions and interviews. Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for your time. We're going to sign off. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you for sending in your questions. That's all for this episode. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.